This is episode number 638 of the Inner Fight Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in, downloading, listening, watching, no matter what you're doing. I appreciate your time. And I'm sure in the next 45 minutes, my guest today, Diran Harchandani, is going to give you things that will make your life better, will help you, will provoke thoughts on a number of different levels. As always, a big shout out to our show sponsor, Smith Street Paleo. No matter where you are in the world, you can take advantage of them, smithstreetpaleo.com for all of those recipes. If you've got a sweet tooth, there's loads of stuff on there that's sugar-free, unprocessed, tastes super good. Hop over there. If you want a meal plan, if you're in the UAE, give them a shout. Hello at smithstreetpaleo.com. They'd love to hear from you. For now, let's hop into this conversation I had with Diran. He's a champion. He takes us on his life journey. Super interesting things to think about. He breaks down meditation and sells it in a great way if sales is the right way to look at it but it's not really he's just telling you how good it can be this ladies and gentlemen is my good friend Diran Hachandani enjoy the show welcome back to another episode of the show ladies and gentlemen as I was saying there in the introduction I'm super excited to have Diran on the show today we have known each other mate for unbeknown to us almost for since 2015 right it's absolutely crazy. Mate, give us a little bit of an intro of yourself. I don't want to butcher it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we're going to rock and roll from there. Okay, so I, um, I've been living in Dubai now for 13 years. Uh, I've been uh, a serial entrepreneur for the last 23 years. Uh, I've been at the intersection of technology and real estate for, for pretty much all my career. Uh, for a brief stint, the... First five years of my career, I was in consulting in the Silicon Valley, uh, where I started my career and moved out here in 2006. Been here since. Prior to that, I was living in the Philippines. I was living in the south, in Southeast Asia, where I um, where I grew up and uh, born in Mumbai, where I didn't live for very long. But uh, yeah, that's that's been my journey to to Dubai. Mate, I want to, I don't know why I want to go straight to Silicon Valley, but I want to start there. What, what's it like? Uh, in terms of being in the Valley? Yeah. Like you hear so much and you know, we're, they're almost like Silicon Valley is almost full in, in my opinion of like untouchables, like these guys that just have this crazy mindset that are so smart and start these businesses. And then, you know, it's all about making truckloads, but what really is it about there? You know, you know, it was a really interesting time to be in the Valley because I was, so I, I timed the market perfectly. I graduated in uh, 2000, sorry, 1999, right when the dot-com bubble was starting to take shape. And back then, Marcus, you know, the, the culture around the Valley wasn't the way it is now because as the dot-com bubble was starting to take shape, and eventually implode, you know, it was a very humbling moment for the Valley. Like a lot of these startups basically, you know, I mean, I remember days when, you know, you'd literally take a business plan, toss it up in the air, and before it landed on the ground, the company was funded. I mean, it was that the frenzy was just, you wow. know, a fever pitch. And, um, <clears throat> but that didn't last long. Uh, in 2002, 2003, it started imploding. And Silicon Valley had to reinvent itself. A lot of those business models didn't work, but uh, 
you know, in terms of the culture, you're right, super smart, very focused, and uh, people who basically did, you know, put very little weight on, on the, on the non-essentials. They were always very focused on how to scale. It was always about how do I take my business global from right. day one. That was the mindset. Right. So they're sort of, I mean, like you said something there that I, I, I know you're big on and I'm not sure if that's why you dropped it in early or not, but you said that they were not focused on non-essentials. What did you mean by that? So it was very focused on, you know, how do I get the maximum impact on my product or service? So they were very focused on, you know, what they did best as opposed to trying to do everything and being in all markets. They focused on two or three key markets where they were going to execute their business model and then worked on scaling from there. So that was one area of, of non-essentials. It wasn't always about global. It was first dominate the local scene, the local market, and then let's start scaling and go global. So very sharp focus in terms of execution. How did you feel like at that young age, mate, being in a place like that of people that are like literally thinking about world domination and next generation stuff? It must have been amazing. It was. It really was. You know, I, I remember, so my first consulting role out of, uh, out of um, college was with this company that trades options. So I was brought in uh, to look after technology for this company that trades options. Now, Options are basically a derivative of equity. And, you know, anyone can trade equities, but it takes a special type of mind to trade options. So this company that I was consulting for was the very best in the industry. Uh, they are the number one options market makers in the world. Wow. And so as I thought, so if you were a trader working for this company, you were one of the best option traders in the world, hands down. Wow. And as I got to know them, you know, being someone who just graduated from college, the markets were going parabolic, bottom left, top right of the chart. You know, I would ask them as I got to know them, so, so what do you trade in your personal account, right? What do you trade? And inevitably, they all answered with the same uh, approach. So all of them, you would think that they were trading this market, that market, this equity, none of them traded anything in their personal account. So what made them the very best traders in the world was that they were trading other people's money. As soon as they started trading their own money, all the emotions started rushing in. And all of a sudden, they weren't the very best in that craft any longer. So it was, it was a very important lesson for me to learn early in my career that, you know, skill, when you... When you detach the emotion to a certain type of skill, the outcome, right? And just being focused on the process yeah. right? elevated your performance so much more. Right. That's incredible. I, I mean, I'm sure we're going to come into emotions and, and all of this later on. What I want to jump to quickly, because I know you're now like you're super active and stuff, but what did health, mindfulness, well-being mean to you? When you, when you sort of started out in your career? So, Marcus, my, my, uh, my journey has been uh, quite turbulent. So about 10 years ago, I, um, 
I had a tornado that basically wreaked havoc in my life. It started in 2008, where the first card in my house of cards dropped. And that card had to do with alcohol. So I wasn't really a big drinker, but it was big enough where it was disruptive to my life. Right. So quitting to drink was a process. It was extremely challenging. The social pressures were absolutely unreal. In the process, I lost a lot of friends, and uh, that could be a whole other talk. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was very challenging. So that was the first card that dropped. The second card that dropped was when I found myself at a fork where I had to make a decision between staying with my wife, Jasmine, who is expecting our first child, or jumping on a plane to chase a business deal. Now, I wouldn't be telling you the story if I ended up staying back. I ended up jumping on the plane to wow. chase the business deal. And what was supposed to follow were happy days. But what followed was far from that. It was really the beginning of this vicious spiral that, that began. And just when things couldn't possibly get worse, or at least I thought back then, the third card dropped. And I started seeing dramatic changes in my physiology. I lost about 12 kilos in, in a very short span. Within two months, I lost 12 kilos. It was horrid. My system got to a point where it went through burning all the fat that existed, that I had, and it started attacking my muscles. The best way to describe it, maybe I'll take a, a page out of your playbook when you describe uh, being at war with yourself when you're running certain races, you're at war with yourself. I was literally at war with myself. I felt like there was this fire burning inside me all day. And um, yeah, so my energy levels were very low. I was extremely, you know, fatigued all the time. I would fall asleep on my desk. I started losing a lot of hair. I remember this one incident. I was in the shower. I was shampooing my hair. All of a sudden, I felt this funny feeling in my hands. I looked and, you know, you know pops of hair was basically falling off. Wow. And at some point, you know, I started feeling these heart palpitations that recall telling friends that, look, you know, I don't think I'm going to be living for very long. And I would tell my wife before going to bed that I don't think I'm going to wake up tomorrow. It was wow. that vicious. And, you know, at that point, it got serious enough, went to see a physician. The good news was that now I knew what I was dealing with. The bad news was there was no cure for what I, for the condition that I was struggling with at least nothing external. The cure was, was, was inside me. It was, it was a mindset shift. I had to basically reconstruct my perception of stress. And during this time, my, my mind, body, spirit was completely aligned. I felt like a stranger in my own body. But the, the weird thing is that I was performing or anyone looking from outside in would see that I was successful, at least in the one-dimensional sense of success. And, you know, back then, if, you, if I double-clicked on success in my head, it would take me to a page that basically would say, no matter how hard you worked, right, it was never going to be enough. And I had to work myself to the point of exhaustion to really put myself in a position to be successful. That was what I was dealing with. So for me back then, it was a very challenging time. And this went on for years. And during the darkest moment of my life, I felt like a closet that was overflowing with non-essentials. So by non-essentials, I mean in the form of unhealthy habits, limiting beliefs, commitments that I really should not be making, all these things that were taking up space in my head, my schedule, my body, that no matter what I did, and because there was no space, nothing new and positive could come in. 
And so I was creating all these major energy leaks. And because I didn't have clear boundaries, I felt like I had my foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. And so at that point, I had to find this magic bullet. Going back to your question, I basically had, I felt this visceral pull to create something new. But to create something new, I had to let go of, of the old, of what was causing this. So I realized that I had to transform and I had to simplify and be more mindful with my approach. And that's when I discovered this lifestyle that I've embraced for the last six years called essentialism. Mental. I mean, it's uh, like there's so much to go out. I, I just wanted to let you talk and, and get it out. And now I can pick it all um, and, and drop back on it. What, when you were growing up, what was health to you? Did it mean anything to you? Was it part of your environment? What, what did health mean maybe when you're 15, 16? Yeah, health didn't mean much. Uh, this was not something that my, my environment put a lot of premium on. Uh, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, like I said, in the Philippines. And I mean, you know, the most direct way I could answer that is it was non-existent. It yeah. really was. Health, sports was a big part of my life. Right. But health the way we know it today was non-existent. Do you think that is a, a foundation for the situation that you found yourself in later in life? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Definitely. Uh, like I said, I mean, when I had to rebuild myself, I had the first pillar uh, that I had to really take very seriously and focus on was health and fitness. I was one of the most unfit people I knew. And now I say this with the utmost humility. I mean, I couldn't, you know how in your recent podcast, you categorize runners in running as a, as a tool from yeah. you know, zero, one, sorry, one, two, and three, right? Yeah. I was not even a one. Like, wow. it wasn't even about hating running. I completely could not get myself to run. As soon as I start running 500 meters, I would be completely gassed. And so I would say I was a minus one. You have to create a new category for me. I was a minus one. I couldn't, I couldn't run. And I learned how to run and eventually ran a sub four hour marathon, which was, you know, something that was something that was so unfathomable. Like I couldn't wrap my mind around running 42 kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. It's always impossible until it's done, right? <laughs> Very much so. Do you think um, that the, the environment in Silicon Valley, where you went to from university, do you think that sort of paid into or just complemented your lack of care for health, mate? Is it an unhealthy place? Are people so focused on, on, on that big deal, on landing that investor and ongoing global that the health just drops by the wayside? Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, like I said, I started my career in consulting and we were expected, there were days at least once every week where we would have to work 24 hours straight, 24 hours nonstop. Uh, and that was, that was the environment because if you weren't keeping up and, and innovating and pushing the, the envelope, you would, you would be you know, a member or you would be a B team player. You weren't part of the A team. So it was always this constant push to try to be, you know, the very best in a very one-dimensional way. It wasn't holistic at all. I mean, you know, this, this 
all this information and awareness around health and fitness didn't exist, or maybe I wasn't aware of it, or I wasn't really conscious of it. But to my knowledge, it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. That's what I really wanted. That was my next question, Darren, is that there's some of probably, and you've introduced me to a couple of them, the smartest people that we will probably ever meet are some of the people that you met during this journey. You guys knew about health. You all knew about it, right? It's not that you didn't know about it. Like, what was going through your mind when you're working 24 hours? The only thing that was going through, I'm trying to take myself back to that moment or those years, the only thing that was going through my mind was the next promotion. Yeah. Like the advancement of my career at all cost. Wow. Because that was the environment that, that, that I was playing in. Those were the rules. So if you, wanted to, if you wanted to win that game, you had to play by those rules. And I imagine it's pretty much exactly that same thought process when you got on the airplane rather than being there for the, the, the birth of, of, of your firstborn. Yeah, I mean, that definitely carried over to that, up to that point. Um, you know, if you were to ask me, do I have any regrets? Would I, would I, if I could go back to 2009, June 2009, would I change my decision? Absolutely not. Right. Because, you know, everything happens, happens for a reason. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. And, and that incident, that experience taught me a very important lesson. And one of the lessons, which I don't think I would be embodying today is having missed the birth of my first child because, you know, I made a huge trade-off of jumping on a plane and prioritizing business. That realization or that colossal mess up, right, taught me a very important lesson, which is now I want to be the best father that I can possibly be. If, and, and, you know, I don't miss, now I don't miss, you know, any parent-teacher meeting. I'm there for every parent-teacher meeting, every sports day, you name it. If it's, it doesn't matter how insignificant it is, if it's, on, if it's about the kids, if it's something to do with family, I'm there. Now, I wouldn't be operating at that full tilt of my parenting if it wasn't for that mistake. That's incredible. Do you think we, do you think we have to hit rock bottom? Like we hear it a lot, don't we? We hear, you know, stories like, and no one's to judge whose story is bigger or more crazy, but we hear recovering alcoholics, drug addicts, uh, poor relationships, all of this. And we essentially hear people having hit the bottom and that's now allowing them to live at the top. Why can't we just live at the top, mate? Yeah, so, you know, every behavior has its beginning and an end. All behaviors are patterns. Uh, have you heard of Pavlov's dogs? Yeah. yeah. So, so you know how when Pavlov would basically ring the bell, the dogs, yeah. the dogs start salivating. And I don't know if, you, if you've heard of the story, but 
he was trying to figure out how to recondition these dogs. Because mm. no matter what he did, even if it wasn't time for lunch, as soon as it, that bell started ringing, they would start salivating. So he, he worked on trying to recondition, couldn't figure out, until one day there was this flood. And these dogs were in the basement. And this flood got to a point where the dogs had to basically keep their snout over the water, barely having any space. They almost lost their life. They almost died from this incident, but they survived. And what he learned after they survived, once the, the flood subsided, he rang the bell and they no longer salivated. So there was this, there was this major pattern interrupt that took place. Mm. And so oftentimes hitting rock bottom, at least in my, in my journey, that rock bottom was a pattern interrupt. It interrupted this pattern of behavior. It gave me a moment to basically take a step back, step out of myself, and really evaluate my life 360. So that's, that's one way we change. I see people who don't have to hit rock bottom. They're so conscious and are fortunate enough to be surrounded by people and who are able to make them understand the root of change, how change actually takes place. Mm -hmm. And when they understand how change takes place and they start committing themselves to making that change, then they don't have to hit rock bottom. They put the techniques and the tools in place and are able to, to transform or make positive changes. Right. Let's help the people not hit rock bottom and let's give them the tools that you used when you were at rock bottom to start to implement in their life right now because it's it's if you ask me that question i don't think everyone has to go to rock bottom like it doesn't have to happen but if we don't start to and you mentioned it there be more conscious and use tools there's a chance that we might hit rock bottom so Let's talk through some of the tools, some of the practices, lifestyle changes that you went through that you believe make you who you are today, six years, eight years, 10 years later. So before we talk about that, I want to actually just quickly talk about motivation because motivation and change are, 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 and habits are all directly linked. There's a lot of connective tissue between these. So there's been this wave of all forms of motivation from speakers, courses, workshops, right? We're, we're in, a, in a golden age of self-improvement, right? Uh, this wave realized that if they can alter people's states, then people will behave differently. And they will find it easier to produce different or often required behavior and this had a massive impact on people's results, right? So as you know, motivational talks, speeches, books, all have a very short-term effect on majority of people. It often wears off rather quickly and there's nothing you know, sustainable and no sustainable change happens, but rather a short-lived one. So the main reason for this is that motivation was provided by something outside of you. It wasn't self-initiated and it's not, therefore not self-maintained. So yeah. the moment the juices wear off, everything goes back to where it always was, back to the known, 
habitual states of behavior. So to me, change really is an inside game, right? It all starts from the inside. And the first thing that I had to do was simplify my life, right? So I, I discovered, as I mentioned, I discovered this lifestyle called essentialism. And essentialism to me is, you know, having been living as an essentialist for the last three, six years, you know, my definition is it's, it's a state of mind. It's the way I spend my time, my habits. It's, uh, it's the pursuit of the vital few over the trivial many, right? To me, it really is the magic bullet that solves all of our problems. So another way to say it is just simplification, yeah. right? Um, now, my desperation for a solution made me super curious and observant. And I noticed that the true essentialists, they were successful because they said no. And by success, I mean holistic success, not just in, in, in their careers or business. So as I started going deeper, I was learning that half of the suffering that I experienced in my life can be traced from saying yes too quickly and not saying no soon enough. And so, why that? <laughs> and, and so, you know, why is non-essentialism the opposite now? Why is non-essentialism so prevalent? So I want to offer you two reasons. Basically, it all really comes down to the fact that we have just way too many choices, right? The choices we have has grown exponentially. And because of that, we've lost sight of the most important ones. Like for me, it was my health. It was my relationships. And the second reason is that there's too much social pressure. The strength and number of outside influences on our decisions has also increased. And because I wasn't purposeful and deliberate with choosing where to focus my energy and time, other people, colleagues, friends, family were choosing for me, right? So, so essentialism is, is really one area that I would encourage all of uh, your, your listeners to, to, to get a better understanding of, because this really is, to me, again, I'm going to say the magic bullet to all of our problems. Another, another uh, approach that has worked really well for me are some habits that I've incorporated into my morning routine. One of them being meditation. So meditation to me is something that, you know, so back at the, at the peak of my dark night of the soul moment, I looked around and asked myself, so who are the happiest people I know? And the two people that kept coming up were my mother and my sister. They had these high degree of self-compassion, awareness, consciousness. And I thought to myself, why are they so happy? What is it that they're doing that most people aren't? And I found that it was their meditation practice. And, you know, there's high quality medical research and evidence now that shows that only two weeks of meditation for five minutes creates these synaptic connections, which means we're actually getting smarter and we're developing a deeper sense of intuition and we're getting better in managing our inner voice. So I asked myself, let me get this straight. It's medically proven that meditation makes me smarter. It makes me happier. It makes me more intuitive. And if there was another reason, I could do it anywhere at any time, and it's free, I signed up. I went all in and started my meditation practice. 
And, you know, I realized very quickly that, you know, the, the motivation to meditate waned in the early days because, you know, we live in this, in this time where we're always looking for instant gratification, right? We, we want results immediately. And what happens with meditation, you know, it, it's very subtle. These changes, although, like I said, two weeks for five minutes, you start seeing or you start creating new synaptic connections until you get to that point where you're conscious of those shifts because they're happening in a very subtle level, right? You're not, you're not feeling it as, as deeply as you would when you go to the gym and, you know, you do a, a CrossFit workout and you come out of it feeling your muscles inflated, right? So it's not that kind of instant gratification. But when, what, I, what I learned was as I was doing it consistently, I started seeing huge benefits that shifted my approach and my lens toward life. Meditation to some people, Dirham, sounds different. Let's put it that way. Uh, some people might say it has a spiritual, religious, uh, cult, all sorts of uh, different comments, mate. Break those down. What is really meditation? Were you super religious before? What was the, what's the scenario? Can you frame it a little bit for us? Okay. So I, I wasn't religious. Um, still not religious. I would say I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Um, so meditation is, is being aware of your unconscious mind. Right? So 95%. So every day, mate, you're going to have 70,000 thoughts, right? You're going to have 70,000 thoughts. You had 70,000 thoughts today. You're going to have 70,000 thoughts tomorrow. And 95% of those thoughts or yeah, 95% of those thoughts are unconscious. So until you make, you know, Carl Jung, the father of psychology said that until you make your unconscious conscious until you're aware of your unconscious you will suffer so and that people were happy because they were conscious of their unconscious mind so let's demystify that for a moment right what do i mean by that so as as i said high quality medical research and evidence now shows that two weeks of meditation for five minutes creates these synaptic connections right so what 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 is actually happening under the hood Right? Many talk about meditation as a tool to be present. I want to change that word from meditation to mindfulness. Right? Right. As a tool to be present. So from a scientific point of view, they offer us a new way of looking at meditation. It's a way to get past your analyt- analytical mind. Right? But what does that really mean? Right? So in Tibet, the symbol for meditation is to become familiar with so if familiar, being familiar means that if 95% of how you are by the age of 35 is a set of these hardwired thoughts, including auto behaviors and reflexive actions that define your personality, then what that means is that 95% of your thoughts run on a sub-program. You're not even aware of these thoughts. Yeah. So how, how do you change if you're not even aware of your thoughts? Right? So the first step to change is being conscious of your unconscious thoughts. 
So, because when you notice how you're feeling and the state of your mind and body, if you're aware of, of that, right? And then, so at that point, you become, you're no longer the program. You're now at the operating system. And you're becoming conscious of your unconscious self. So when you have better control of your state of mind, your inner voice, that incessant chatter that you know, is constantly running in between our ears, that starts unlocking awareness. That starts unlocking our ability to drive sustainable change because we're now, being, we're now more aware of these thought patterns and everything is a thought and everything are thought patterns. So at this point, for me, my energy started going up. I started developing a deeper intuition and I started becoming more creative. I became more abundant. So that to me is meditation. But again, meditation, I completely agree with you. It has this spiritual, religious connotation, but let's call it mindfulness then. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, it does, mate, but I, I think the way that you framed it there, and, and maybe if I can sum it up a little bit, meditation is just retraining your brain to a certain extent and, and organizing your thoughts. I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's dedicating a certain amount of time every day to organize your thoughts and in doing so, reprogramming your subconscious. Now, people need to buy into the fact that Call it 95%, 80% of our lives is programmed in our subconscious, obviously. Um, but that's kind of science. So they kind of, if you don't buy into that, you're, you're a little bit out there. Um, but that's really, it, it's strange how sometimes it gets a, a, like you say to someone, yeah, I do meditation. They're like, whoa, you know, like, oh, dude, like, don't try that shit on me, <laughs> don't they? I mean, that's, that's the way it goes, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, that's why I'd like to provide this frame. So we know that the brain is a muscle, right? Uh, and we've discussed uh, neuroplasticity. And so if the brain is a muscle and meditation is a way to, to strengthen that muscle. Right? So I think the, the way this has been framed, you know, by the meditation let's call it a movement or that space. It's not a frame that resonates with most people. So I think that approach needs to be reframed in a way that is far more, uh, that, that, that resonates with people in, in ways like, you know, if, if you wanted to grow your muscles, right? Like you wanted you know, a bigger bicep, you go and you lift weights and the outcome of the results is that you end up growing your muscles. So it's the same thing with the brain. Meditation is that gym that you go to, to actually strengthen that, that muscle in between our ears, to be able to be more aware of our thoughts. And the more aware we are of our thoughts, that's when the real magic really happens. That's what, um, I've heard that used before, uh, meditation is gym for the mind. I think it was by the guy that uh, founded or is something to do with the car map, which is huge. If people are interested in this, they're probably the go-to ones, aren't they, mate? Like Headspace and Calm, 
if you want some sort of guided meditation. I think his name's Jim or something like that. He's like, which is true. Like, I want to get bigger legs. I do back squat. I want to get mentally more stronger. I need to have a meditative practice. Now, for so many different people, that can mean different things. For some people, that's sitting with monks in Tibet. For other people, that's downloading an app. Some people can work on their mind just by sitting and looking out a window. Like, that's a that's a probably one of the most underrated forms of meditation, daydreaming, just getting all of these thoughts in order and, 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 and training the mind. So, mate, another tool, moving on from the freaky stuff, let's bring it back a little bit to sport um, <laughs> or the stuff that freaks people out because it's harder to get in contact with. But still, that's another point for another time. Sport also was one of your, I guess, key pillars of change and reformation. Talk us through that a little bit, mate. And so, so that was the first pillar that I really needed to, to really work on. And like I said, I, I was one of the most unfit people I knew. I, I couldn't do, you know, five push-ups in a row. It was, it was that sad. Uh, and, you know, after I was coming out of this dark night moment, I realized that I really needed to focus on, you know, my, the biggest impact that I could make was around fitness. Um, and I started focusing on, so I used to go to the gym. That was my idea of fitness, lift weights. That was the beginning and the end of it. Uh, I wasn't tracking anything other than that. I, um, I then, it all started at a dinner with, um, with some friends who introduced me to the world of Ironman and triathlons. And this gentleman spoke with so much passion. Like the passion was palpable. I could just feel it. And he was talking about, you know, swimming, biking, running. And at that moment, I don't know if it was the right moment at the right time, I was ready. I took the number of the coach. The next day, I called her up. And that was when my, my fitness journey really began. Um, so I went straight into the deep end. Uh, before that, I was, I was doing a few 5Ks, 10Ks here and there, but for the most part, it was, uh, it was running exclusively. Uh, and then did that for about a year and a half to two, and that's when I transitioned into, um, into triathlons. What was it that you found in, like, yeah, in that sport, mate? It's... it's because sometimes, like, for a lot of people, it's a sport that they transition to, endurance. Like, people just, this will create the changes I'm looking for. What, what was it for you that was like, this is for me? You know, it was, the, it was the fact that it was so tough. For me, I wanted to put myself in a position of extreme discomfort. Uh, and, you know, so as I was saying, right, I, I couldn't run. I started learning how to run. I had this, this fear of swimming in the open water and <laughs> decided that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start learning. I, I'm going to learn how to swim. I mean, I knew how to swim. If you put me in the pool, I wouldn't drown, but I didn't have the technique by any stretch. Yeah. And once I checked the running box and checked the swimming box, then I thought, okay, well, you know what? Why not learn how to bike? And then really get into the, uh, uh, you know, the, the endurance side of, uh, of the sport. Uh, but for me, it was, it was really about 
putting myself in a position where I was constantly challenging myself. And it had to be a big goal. As I was saying, I was coming out of this dark night phase and everything had to be recalibrated from my sleep, my nutrition, um, my, my working hours, everything basically needed a recalibration. And the only anchor that I could think of at that point was sport, was picking this really big goal that was going to set the cadence and the tone for the rest of you know, my, my routine, my life. So because it was such a big goal, I had to get to, to bed at a certain hour. I had to basically make hard decisions, had to say a lot of no's to social commitments, business trips, all these different things that were pulling me in all these different directions. So sport really is what got me out of that. Incredible. Very powerful, mate. And uh, I mean, you've been super successful. We could, we could actually keep talking about, we could go to different tangents left and right here because there's so much, but I'm, I'm a little bit conscious of your time. And I'm also conscious that a lot of people are probably listening and we've gone on this really interesting journey from Silicon Valley to sort of a dip in life and, 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 and taking the plane instead of going to the birth. And we, mate, a lot of people are like, well, what does this guy actually do now? So talk to us a little bit through sort of what, what you do now as if you want to call it a job or passion and, and where you're at with that. I think that's interesting. So I, um, uh, I've been a serial entrepreneur for the last 15 years, um, primarily around software, real estate software. Um, I, uh, I run a couple of businesses in the technology space. Uh, recently, about three and a half, four years ago, I started mentoring in this organization called EO, which is how we met. Yeah. And um, in that, in that, on that platform, I started mentoring some of the um, some of the entrepreneurs, and I had some success around that uh, because it was in my wheelhouse, very focused on entrepreneurial mentorship. But what I found was that the coaching and the mentoring that I was doing was spilling over to different facets of life from, you know, from fitness to, uh, to relationships, to all these areas that I wasn't really equipped with tools and, and frameworks. Uh, when put in that situation, I would share my experience of how I dealt with, you know, a similar scenario, but I didn't have the, the tools and techniques to be able to, really coach effectively. Yeah. But that's what I realized. I got bit by the bug. So I remember um, having um, this, there was this one moment where my coaching journey really began was a year and a half after coaching, I was at an event with, actually I wasn't at the event, but because I was on a business trip, but this event where the entrepreneurs in this organization were speaking because they had just graduated from the program. And one of the mentees that I was mentoring came up on the mic and said, you know, if it wasn't for Deering, I my business would not be where it is today. Like, I've been successful because he's been able to guide me and mentor me through the process. And that was such a humbling moment for me. And it was at that moment that I realized that this was something that I needed to develop. I needed to develop this ability to make an impact. So 
my mentor um, out of my, when I graduated from college would say that if you looked at your life in three parts, the first part being where you learn as much as you can. The second part is when you apply what you've learned. And the last part is when you actually make an impact and you share everything you've learned. So I feel like I'm now making this transition and maybe COVID has accelerated that process, but I feel like I'm making this transition now where I want to make a bigger impact. So I've, um, I've started uh, this passion, this journey that I've been on of transformative coaching. So that's something that I've been uh, developing um, in terms of um, passion, now going into turning it into a business. Incredible, mate. It's, um, it's super interesting because I always say when I was at school, and I think this is common for a lot of people, we obviously resonate most with the teachers that get in the trenches with us. And that, you know, and I remember when I, when I first started coaching people ultra running, a lady came to me and asked me if I could help her prepare for, for an ultra. And uh, I said, listen, I, I, I just don't have the skill set. I haven't done one. And she's like, oh, you don't need to do one. I said, well, how can I coach you to change or to prepare, sorry, and I haven't done it. I said, I'm going to research it. I'm going to learn. And that's kind of what sparked a lot of my, my ultra or thought more thoughts on ultra running. But you have this skill set. You have been in the trenches. And so now delivering those skills to people that are, I guess, I guess you could say from similar business backgrounds to you are going through the same things and are, have missed or are missing that holistic piece that we spoke about is, mate, it's, it's, it's amazing that you're doing it. It really is. Thank you. You know, coach never really gives the solution. Uh, instead, they get you in the right state to find the solution for yourself. Yeah. That's very cool. Mate, listen, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I do have one last question, which because you listen to the podcast, you're probably prepared for it. Single one best piece of advice you can give to our listeners as your parting thoughts. What would, they, what would that piece of advice be? Piece of advice. Um, I would say boundaries are real. All these boundaries that we place in our life, in sport, in all facets of our life, these boundaries are real in our mind. Awesome. There we have it. Darren, thank you, mate, so much for your time. Absolutely brilliant insights. This is one I'm going to probably have to listen to two or three times to pull out all of the, the, the great stuff. But, mate, thank you for sharing such a great story with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me in the podcast. Mark.